The opinions and views expressed in Dead Men Do Tell Tales and all affiliated media are Jordan and Nicole's and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of their training program or others working in the field of medical legal death investigation. Hey everyone! Welcome to Dead Men Do Tell Tales, a podcast about forensic pathology-related topics. I'm Nicole Kroom, and I'm Jordan Taylor, and we're both pathology residents who are interested in forensic pathology. And today we wanted to talk about kind of autopsies in general. We haven't really talked about the procedure itself yet, and since that's kind of the core of what our future job would be, we figured we should probably, you know, go into some specifics about that. Yeah. Autopsy, the word itself, means to see for oneself. So the point of an autopsy is you go through the body and you see it to make the diagnoses. Oh, to see for oneself. I always thought the auto was about a person is performing it on another person. Mm-mm. So, Because the top, I think the OP is like the optical and the oh. auto is the oneself. So it's for oneself to see. So it's to see for oneself. I thought it was like an examination of the self, Mm. which is why I always thought that animal autopsies were actually necropsies, right? Yes. So you're still seeing for yourself. So it's to see the animal. The neck is a dead animal. So to see the dead animal. Huh. Okay. Learn something new every day. So yeah. Autopsies are also called postmortem examinations or some people call them necropsies, but as, as Nicole just said, usually when you do a postmortem on an animal that's called a necropsy um and then one fun latin i found because latin's always fun to throw in there mm-hmm. is autopsia cadaverum and that's how they used to say autopsy i think so um so and then real quick an autopsy itself is technically a surgical procedure you're not quite as sterile as they do when they do <laughs> when you think of surgery on a human but it's an exam of a corpse through observation and sometimes dissection to determine the cause and manner of death. Evaluate the disease or injury for research or educational purposes. So it's the actual surgical slash observation procedure and seeing it for yourself. Cool. So now into a little bit about the history of autopsy. And most of my information I got from Autopsy Pathology, a manual and atlas, uh, which is one of the standard autopsy pathology textbooks that we use during residency. And back in the early days of man, it was somewhat taboo to dissect your fellow dead humans. So a lot of the early information we had about anatomy started with the study of animals. And some of the earliest forms were haru spicy, which was a form of divination that was uh, performed by inspecting animal entrails. Um, And then also Talmudic law. Um, stated, thou shalt not eat anything that dieth of itself. So rabbis would actually examine slaughtered animals for evidence of disease. Oh. Yeah. So if an animal dieth of like cancer, that is a disease of itself. And so you couldn't eat it. Interesting. My guessing also involves like infection and that kind Mm -hmm. of thing, which would obviously make you sick. Right. Cool. Yeah. I like that. And what, do do we have a time frame for that? Or is that just in the past? That is just in the past. I'm sure there was more (laughs) timelines in the, in the textbook, but I didn't write them down because I thought that much detail would be a little bit agreed too much. 
So I always start at 3500 BC. When you think of the autopsy to examine the body, it was more in that time. But kind of even before that, they were doing dissections. So Egyptians, we'd know them very well from mummification. Yeah. Um, And back as early as like 3500 BC, um, that's when the first naturally mummified bodies happen. So mummification, there's two ways to do it. There's natural mummification when you just like are essentially desiccated, just dried out, and your tissue is actually somewhat better preserved. Kind of the reason we decompose is because it's moist and hot, but if it's dry and hot, everything just kind of dries out and is really well preserved. In 3500 BC, apparently Egyptians were naturally mummified because they were buried in shallow graves and hot sand, which just desiccated the bodies. Hmm. And kind of like what you were saying is it was not okay to do autopsies because they wouldn't make it into the afterlife. Egyptians then kind of morph this into, well, if you preserve the body really well with mummification, you're going to survive better into the afterlife. So they went from these bodies that were naturally mummified being like, well, maybe we should mummify these bodies to preserve them so they can go into the afterlife. So in 2600 BC, that's when they first achieved true mummification And in that, they eviscerated the body, which means opening up the body and taking out all of the internal organs. And then they would preserve the body in various um, minerals and oils and kind of dry it out completely. And then usually they would leave the heart because apparently the heart is, I love the way they phrase this. (laughs) It's the seat of thought and feeling and would be needed in afterlife. Right, because they take it to Anubis and then he weighs it against the feather. And if it's lighter than the feather they get to go through i didn't know that that's really cool oh yeah i well i learned that from american gods one of my favorite books <laughs> it's fair yeah it's fair and yeah so kind of this was the earliest that we found of somebody altering a human body after it's been dead because yeah. other than this culture it was really like don't touch the dead body because they're not going to make it into the afterlife or disease or which is totally understandable. Yeah. Um, but kind of the ancient Egyptians were the first ones to start doing a kind of non-academic autopsy. Yeah. Another thing that was mentioned in the textbook about why there wasn't a big push to start doing dissections was because this was back when there was the humoral theories of disease. So the bad humors were what was causing disease. It wasn't anything to do with physiology or anatomy because they didn't really understand that. Um, at least in ancient Greece, so that discouraged the investigation of anatomy and disease correlation. That makes sense. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, what I found about Egypt was Ptolemy I, he was a king of Egypt, Mm -hmm. and he established the university in Alexandria, and that's where scholars dissected the human body throughout 3 BCE. Um, And they performed it on executed criminals. The first recorded autopsy that I saw... Um, and maybe you probably have the same one, mm-hmm. was Julius Caesar's autopsy in 44 BC. Oh, no. Um, that wasn't the one that was oh. given in the, the textbook. So Julius Caesar died in oh. 44 BC. Actually, mine is um, in North America. So oh, yes. okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they weren't, we weren't quite in North America mm, nope. yet. First recorded autopsy ever. Again, there were probably some before this, but this was obviously pretty big. Julius Caesar... Um, as everybody knows, he got betrayed by his members of the Senate, and they came in, essentially all descended upon him, and stab, 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 stab. What, what was that? Stab, 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 stab. <laughs> he got stabbed 23 times, and the reason they know that 
there wasn't one of the reasons they did an autopsy done is they said that the second stab wound was the fatal one. Oh. Apparently the second stab wound um, severed his aorta. Which That'll do, do it. it. Yeah. <laughs> the aorta is um, the biggest blood vessel in your body. Attached to the heart that bit. delivers the blood everywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> the cause of death was mostly due to blood loss from the stab wounds. Mainly the one big one to the big pumper in the middle. Oh. But yeah, so 44 BC... So over 2,000 years ago was the first recorded autopsy. Impressive. Yeah, the first autopsy that was recorded in North America was on conjoined twins in Santa Domingo oh. in 1553. Uh, oh. No, 1533. Interesting. And the goal with that autopsy was not actually to establish cause of death. It was to determine whether it was two souls in one body or one soul sharing a body. What did they determine? Uh, I don't, they didn't say what their conclusion was. And I don't even know how you would, like, what are you seeing inside of the body that is making you determine whether it was two souls or one? Well, my guess is around that time, they, you know, linked various things to the soul. So probably like their heart was their soul. So if there was one heart, then it was their one souls were linked soul and two bodies. I mean, I, I don't know that particular, but like my guess is something like yeah, that. Like there's that some organ that they say is like we said, Egypt, the heart was the seat of thought and feeling. Right. Yeah. So it's probably something like that. Yeah. I, yeah, I thought that was really interesting though. I think they're different souls. You think they're different souls? I think they're different souls. Yeah. I would agree with that. <laughs> So I have in 150 BC, which is before Julius Caesar's autopsy, Rome had established legal practices that had clear parameters for autopsies. But again, that's like 100 years before Julius Caesar had his autopsy. So timeline's a little weird. But then again, we don't know the timeline from that area super well anyway. Yeah. It's kind of around the Jesus Christ being born plus or minus a couple hundred years is when (laughs) these things started to become a little bit more done on some people. But then it wasn't until mid-1800s is kind of the beginning of the real practice of autopsy being done. Yeah, I had... Oh, no, like sixteen, late 1600s. Yeah, because the book that I was looking at, they kind of split it into um, kind of like ancient history and then the Renaissance. And okay. so in the Renaissance, yeah. they started having public human dissections that yep. were performed by barber surgeons to try to advance the study of anatomy and to make money and to make money yes oh don't do that anymore (laughs) (laughs) for hospitals don't want to bring that one back either uh and then andreas vesalius ushered in the modern era of anatomy in the 16th century yes vesalius he advanced anatomic concept of disease um and people began to recognize normal versus abnormal when they were doing these dissections there was this guy giovanni battista morgani um he was called the father of anatomic pathology yeah yeah this guy and um he was kind of started this what's normal and what's abnormal and i can try to say the latin version of it but i'm probably gonna mess it up do it do it (laughs) de sedibus a causis morborum per anatomen indigatus yeah (laughs) the seats and causes of disease investigated by anatomy before they started doing autopsies, all they can do was physical exams. So they can look in your eyes, look in your ears, look in your nose, listen to your heart. Once they developed a stethoscope, which is still <laughs> surprisingly late. Or and... they studied anatomy through looking at people's injuries. So if somebody oh. got this like big cut on their forearm, they could be like, oh, what's in there? Oh, it's a nerve. Yeah. So like, they had just no idea. 
And of course, it was couldn't touch a dead mm-hmm. person, which yeah. is understandable for the for the time. But all of a sudden, they had this wealth of knowledge that, like quote unquote, sprung forth once they started doing autopsies and discovering all of this. And and so he was this Morgani. He died in 1771, and then I saw in the mid 1800s. Karl von Rokotansky and his colleagues at the Second Vienna Medical School started regularly dissecting to improve diagnostic medicine. Mm. So at that point, it was less, well, it was still discovery, but this is the medical disease that they thought they had, and now they've died, so let's do this autopsy and see what we see in the postmortem to correlate with the clinical outcomes and to try to... Oh, that quality improvement stuff started pretty early on in autopsy, huh? Well, once they had the technique, and I was like, oh, look at this. Find out so many things. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then in the 18th century, a little jumping around here, uh, Verkow, Rudolf Verkow, established and published specific autopsy protocols. So Verkow and Rokotansky are going to come up later, too. Yeah. But they're kind of around the same era. Verkow was a little earlier. But the two of them were kind of some of the big early pathologists that take shape for later on. Yeah. And then later in the 1800s, um, Sir William Osler, he performed like 800 plus autopsies and produced a book called The Principles and Practice of Medicine. And it was also along the same lines of correlating the clinical findings and what they thought clinically with what he was finding in these autopsies. And in the textbook that I was looking at, there was a picture of him performing an autopsy. No gloves on. Oh. So. Back in the glory days. No, thank you. You could feel things with your fingertips. I could feel things with my fingertips (laughs) and my gloves, too. (laughs) And I like my gloves. I found 44 lymph nodes today through those gloves. (laughs) So now when we do autopsy, usually people at least double glove if not, wear a cut-proof glove. Like, obviously, you have both hands in there as you're cutting with a scalpel and cutting yourself through a patient. You can either get an infectious disease or all the things. Yeah. Um, so we're a little more cautious. Nowadays. Yeah. No communicable diseases. <laughs> why, why would one do an autopsy? Why do this invasive medical procedure? So we talked a little bit about improving medical outcomes, furthering clinical medicine. It can also be used, as we talked about in our last episode, to uh, create the death certificate, which can help families with insurance and funeral arrangements and things like that. Um, And then there's also, from a public health perspective, the autopsy is super useful for both surveillance and infection control. And that's kind of going along with the assuring the accuracy of clinical diagnoses with the surveillance bit, confirming that people are dying of what you think they're dying of allows a public health entity to allocate a community's limited resources to the things that are actually affecting people in the community. And then also for research, um, as we talked about before, discovery was a big thing early on, but it's still important nowadays when we have all of these new sort of diseases and entities that we're diagnosing, but we don't really understand the pathology that's going on. We can see the different systems that are affected more clearly when we do an autopsy. And also to provide closure for the family. It's a, it's a huge deal to know for certain why your loved one passed away. Um, and in terms of precision medicine, Also, you can diagnose some hereditary diseases on autopsy that weren't diagnosed 
clinically during the person's life, and that can have implications for the family as well. And then, so, when the forensic autopsy meet, like, thing, what are the injuries, what are the extent of the injuries, time of death, identity, and then there's other things, like, we can do a little bit about teaching and research, harvesting things for, Nicole said, research, but also um, medical student teaching, doing anatomic autopsy. Often postmortems are done in infants. Um, people that when they were delivered, they were delivered stillborn or something like that. And using an autopsy, you can determine if they were viable, if they weren't viable, if there was some congenital defect that was present that they wouldn't have survived um, out of the womb. If there's a lot of things that you can determine from an infant autopsy or a fetopsy. Yeah. And whether the parents have an increased risk of the same thing happening in future children. So those are kind of some, some of the big overall reasons that somebody would do an autopsy. And I'm sure that there's more than that that we, we didn't, that we failed to mention. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and kind of the three big breakdowns on types of autopsies. There's medical legal forensic autopsies. There's clinical slash medical autopsies. So in hospital autopsies. And then the third one that probably the first autopsy that anybody that's a doctor will ever do is in medical school. Academic autopsies are super important. The other two big breakdowns are medical legal slash forensic autopsies and then hospital autopsies, so clinical autopsies. I found this paper that was kind of going over the differences between the two. The main difference between the two is that the clinical autopsy and the medical legal death investigation autopsy have different aims. They're kind of similar, but a a little bit different. So the clinical autopsy is mostly focused on determining the cause and mechanism of death. So we talked a lot uh, last episode about cause and manner. So cause is that inciting injury or disease that leads to some sort of physiological derangement that causes the death. The mechanism is that physiologic derangement itself. So clinical is kind of aimed towards educational and quality assurance. So making sure that what they thought clinically is what actually was the cause of death. So cause and mechanism are super important. Versus medical legal, as we were talking about a lot last episode, cause (laughs) and manner. Nice. Cause and manner. (laughs) You're just going to open it. I'm going to do it too. Cause and manner are the uh, main... The so main today objectives. we're drinking some St. <laughs> Archer white ale that has like a good solid spice to it, which is really good. Yeah. Uh, the reason I was interested in trying it is because I was wondering if it was like the Allagash white. It's a little spicier than Allagash. Yeah. In a good way. Like has more, more of a... I like Allagash, but I like this a little bit better. I don't know if I would go that far, but I do enjoy this. It does say spiced ale. I didn't even see that until right now. Oh, nice. I just feel better about my palate. Oh, it's in San Diego. Road trip. Yeah. Yes. So they, the main <laughs> objectives are different. Yes. A little bit. Yes. So cause and mechanism for clinical, cause and manner, more important for medical legal. And then uh, we kind of mentioned the different reasons why an autopsy would be performed. Um, so for medical legal, it's also, yeah. Yeah, it's also important to establish identity because a lot mm-hmm. of times you get a, a decedent who doesn't have uh, identification. They're found in a location where they're not sure who they are. So, and then time of death. Yes, it's not. We're not great at establishing time of death, but you can give ranges. Yeah. So we can say the person's been dead for you know hours, days, weeks, 
And we'll definitely talk about that in a later episode. No, there's there's a wealth of evidence on that. And then medical Um, legal autopsies, another important bit, is collecting evidence. evidence, Yes. Yes. (laughs) So you can get toxicology data from various fluids. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, You can get DNA evidence either underneath fingernails from defense wounds or maybe fluids that have dripped onto the the, um, decedent or in body cavities. And then things like gunpowder residue mm-hmm. you can um, get off of the decedent. And just cata- uh, cataloging their clothes and their personal effects and other things that are found on them is also part of the collection. And photographs. And all, all of the photographs. Yes. Besides objectives for clinical uh, versus medical legal, there's also the methodology is different mm-hmm. most of the time. So... In the hospital, they'll often do something that we'll go into more detail about called the Rokitansky method, where you take the organs out altogether, versus in the medical legal world, you usually do something called the Verkau method, where you take the organs out one by one. Verkau? Verkau. Verkau. Verkau? You say it differently than I do. It's Verkau. You say Verkau. Verkau. <laughs> Emphasis on the wrong syllable. Wait. Veer cow. Veer cow. Instead of ver cow. You said ver cow. <laughs> Veer cow. Veer cow. Or ver cow. Ver cow. It's not ver cow. Lingardium leviosa. <laughs> not Lingardium leviosa. Sa, of course. <laughs> anyway, um, often in forensics, we um, you will take organs out one by one or smaller blocks Yep. Um, versus in hospital autopsies, you usually take kind of all of the organs out as one block, which we'll go into a little bit detail, more detail on later on. Um, uh-huh. And then usually the clinical autopsy, you have a lot more information because the person died in the hospital. So you have pre-mortem bet- information. Right. Yeah. yeah. You have more access to the highly detailed medical records, um, lab values. results. And imaging. Then, imaging. Yeah. Imaging that's a big key. one. And then also, you don't need consent for a medical legal autopsy, but you do need consent for a hospital autopsy. I bolded and highlighted need permission from next of kin. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because it's so different. Because if somebody dies not in a hospital, there is no permission needed from anybody. You have a right, if a medical examiner determines it or if a coroner examines an autopsy needs to happen, the family can't really come in and say you're not allowed to. But... A lot of medical legal death investigation offices try to work with the family if there are certain religious beliefs that they hold that need to be observed. Like if a body needs to be interred within a certain amount of time, then the uh, coroner or medical examiner will try to examine that body really quickly to get them um, buried within the time frame. Or if the organs need to be returned whole, then they'll try to work with the family to do that as well. So, But... It's still one of those things that if it can't, then the law kind of wins out on that. Yeah. Like I was doing one autopsy here where there's, I want to say it's a Chinese custom where they have a jade bracelet on and you can't take the jade bracelet off or you won't be able to, and again, I'm sorry if I get this incorrect, but you might not make it into the afterlife or something along those lines. So the doc that I was working with would wrap that wrist um, in like a cloth or something after, of course, investigating underneath like the skin and everything to make sure everything was normal because they're very fragile and if it hits the table it might break Mm. so you know taking like just little things like that taking care to make sure that this didn't break for religious purposes yeah 
But, of course, if somebody was murdered, you need to fully investigate that. And, unfortunately, sometimes you can't always take the family's wishes into account. So, in terms of the medical, clinical autopsies, sorry, not medical legal, but, like, the hospital-based autopsies, you often do those to see if the clinical impression was correct. You often do them to identify medical error. So the family, let's say that um, somebody died in the hospital and the family is concerned that something happened, they can request an autopsy and then the pathologist will do the autopsy and can reveal a medical error that, um, that occurred. And then kind of just to ensure standard of care. We were talking about this a little earlier, just making sure that things were done properly and Either surgery was done right or lines and tubes were placed correctly because we can see where those end up. And while imaging is much better today, there are still things that slip. And then interestingly, since 1955, the number of autopsies performed in hospitals has been decreasing every year, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. And I was thinking about why that would happen. Do we, why is this not happening? Do we not care about improving? Do we not care about follow-up and two of the things that i thought of were one we just talked about imaging imaging is getting so much better yeah you know it might have been before where you know did we intubate this person correctly but now there's a little radio opaque line that goes down the side of the tube and if you image them you can see that yeah you can see where the lines end up you can see if the surgery was done correctly to a certain extent where it used to be you didn't know these things imaging is so much better mm-hmm. and then laboratory testing has gotten a lot better. Yeah. So, you know, we can get blood cultures back. We can get different antibodies back and be like, well, I know they had this weird autoimmune disease. Yeah. And some other things that I found when I was doing research for this episode, they talked about the increased confidence in diagnostic techniques, so the better imaging, but also clinicians are sometimes not willing to ask for an autopsy like they don't want to go to the the family and part of that is because getting authorization from a grieving family would be i I mean i've never had to do it but it seems like it would be a not fun not yes not fun and then there's also maybe this unwillingness to dwell on failures or a fear of increase in malpractice suits why would that be a thing now than before? Because we're, we're more litigious now? Maybe. Because it said that it started decreasing in 1955. Like, yeah. I guess maybe we're more litigious now than we were then? I do feel like defensive medicine has become more and more of a thing. And then there's also cited a dissatisfaction with the quality um, of turnaround time. Okay. The turnaround time for autopsy reports. It can So it can take a while, unfortunately, when you do an autopsy because... Let's say that you get the um, the autopsy release form, and then you would do the dissection itself, and then maybe the next day you'll submit blocks to look at under the microscope, and then the next day you look at under the microscope, and then it can just take a while to be written up. There's a lot of detail that you need to go over, and there are a lot of other cases that are happening at the same time. You could be signing out things for patients that are still alive that you might prioritize because they just had breast surgery and you want to let them know that they got all the cancer out. Yeah. So it's prioritization can be an issue. Yeah. That was another thing that I found when I was doing the research was that pathologists are more reluctant to do autopsies. And part of it is because, I mean, people always associate pathology with doing autopsies, but that is not what most pathologists do. And it's not what most pathologists want to do. So there are a lot of pathologists that aren't interested in doing autopsies and then they don't get 
as good training so they don't feel confident in doing autopsies. And then also budgetary reasons. Yes. Like there's this the value. You won't get versus, reimbursed. Yeah. You don't get reimbursed when somebody can't collect on Medicare anymore. Right. But it is worked into the way that the budget works within the pathology department is you end up in a very small, small amount because autopsies can be expensive, but most hospitals don't perform all that many in a year. So UCSF, they do something like 180 a year, but still in the grand scheme of that cost of those autopsies can be spread over the tens of thousands of surgical specimens that we get, which are everything from like the biopsies you get from a colonoscopy to the big cancer resections and kind of the budget doesn't get spread out among all those things, but it's figured out to include things that we cannot charge Medicare for. Mm. Hospital-based autopsies have a very different purpose than the medical legal autopsies. Yes. Um, and then I think the last thing we wanted to do was kind of run through the different types of physical autopsies. So when we're doing the procedure, what parts of the procedure do we do and how much do we go into? The first easiest, and this is more done in the medical legal world than the clinical hospital-based world, is just an external exam. So this is when somebody, but maybe somebody with some known medical condition, somebody who dies of a suicide with a note, maybe they'll just external them. Um, what are some other instances when you just do external only? I feel like most of the times when I've seen external only, it's a person who has clinical history of something that is definitely known to cause sudden death and they were found down at home and they hadn't seen a doctor in a while. And so it's presumed that one of these natural causes of death killed them, Mm -hmm. such as cardiovascular disease, and we don't need to go digging for it. There was one kind of external only I had when somebody um, shot themselves in the head with a shotgun. And that was, it was so blatantly obvious. There's no point going to the chest cavity when you know that. But I also have had probably one of my favorite sayings that I've heard from a forensic pathologist is the only autopsy I regret is the one I didn't do (laughs) because you're going to have that one time when you're like, well, yeah, it's obviously this. And then you didn't go and do something else like like the guy that um, had been shot in the head with a shotgun. Right. Well, I'm being very speculative here. Maybe somebody poisoned him in some way and then staged him being shot in the head. And because you didn't run toxicology, you didn't find that poison in their system. You can go down every rabbit hole you want and come up with all the situations you want. But I I do really like that phrasing. The only autopsies (laughs) I regret are the ones I didn't do. Yeah, that's good. So to start with external, what do you do? So we kind of talked about this before, but to the scenes, forensic pathologists don't always go to scenes. But when one does go to the scene, your main job at the scene is to document everything that you humanly can with photographs. You, as the forensic pathologist and the medical, the death investigation, usually don't collect evidence from the scene besides the body itself. But you take lots of pictures and kind of most of the external comes down to take lots of pictures. So you document where the body is, how it's positioned, and then you put the body with all of the clothing on it into a bag and bring it to the medical examiner's office. But once you get that body back to the medical examiner's office, um, not everywhere does this, but a lot of places just do a called Lodox, so like a X-ray of the entire body in the bag. So you can see the body, you can see usually any possessions on them and anything that might be in or around the body. And after you, you get an X-ray, usually you bring it to the table, 
you open up the bag because they usually are brought over in a body bag. Then you do measurements on the body. And then you also document the presence of things like injuries uh, that you can see externally, any therapeutic devices. So like if somebody died in the hospital, but they became uh, a medical legal case, well, also in the hospital, you'll just document if they're intubated, if they have any IV lines, anything like that. Um, And then you also document if they have any scars or tattoos, things that can be used to make an identification. Uh, It's basically like the physical exam that your doctor does, uh, which is why the autopsy is called your last physical exam. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You see it for yourself. Yeah. Um, Some of the specific things that you'll collect. We talked a little bit about evidence. So fingerprints. One of the things you do, especially medical legal autopsies, is establish an identification. One of the good ways to do that is fingerprints. Um, gunpowder residue, uh, fingernails. Often you look for things under the fingernails. You can, you want to look for. You'll, you'll clip the fingernails. You don't like. Well, oh yes, yeah, are you collect clip, you clip the... the you clip the end down to like the nail bed and kind of get some of the skin under too. And then the last thing with an external exam um, is something like a rape kit that is still part of an external exam because you're not cutting into anything. So it's like buckle swabs, mouth swabs, and vaginal swabs or penile swabs it's still technically part of an external exam. And then kind of one step up from an external exam is when you include um, toxicology. So things that you can collect without having to um, cut into the body is you can get vitreous fluid, which is a fluid around your eyes. And then you can insert a needle and get femoral blood, urine, cardiac blood. So these are things that you can do that's the tiniest bit more invasive than an external exam. But then you can get that data that's like, you know, somebody died from clinically an overdose. You can get toxicology back and say, yes, they indeed do have way more fentanyl than a horse should have in their system. Yeah. That's what they died from. So external to tox only. And then we get into the full. So we touched on this earlier, but there are different ways of performing an internal examination and that's where you open up the body and then you look at the internal organs one of the ways you can do that is the and now i'm going to be really self-conscious about this veer cow method uh, which is where you remove the organs uh, one at a time there's this other method called the gone method which the organs are removed in several blocks so one of the the kind of the standard blocks that you think of are you know, the heart and lung block is often thought as one, even though we often take out the heart and then the lungs. Your GU block would be your sorry, genitourinary. So those would be your kidneys and bladders. And um, usually your male and female pelvic organs are included with those, depending on which ones you happen to have. Um, so it's kind of like you take the body and you break it down into some different groups. So um. Virkow is each individually. So it's like just the heart and then just one lung and then just the other lung. And then I'm going to take out this kidney and then yeah. that kidney. And that's what a lot of forensic pathologists do. Mostly Virkow and then a little bit of mini blocks. So like the neck block is often taken out together. Yeah. But that would be part of a gone. G-H-O-N. I've also seen forensic pathologists do the mini block method mm-hmm. if they suspect a specific cause of death. Yes. Which would be better appreciated by keeping certain organs together. Yes. Yes. And sometimes it's technically difficult to separate organs out when you're um, in the body cavity. So like if somebody has a really bad cancer that is making all the organs adherent to one another, mm. you can take it out together. And then when you have more space, it might be easier to dissect it out later. Yeah. 
And it's not necessarily important to see it in situ. Which brings us to the last method, which is the Rokitansky method, uh, which is doing the dissection in situ. So with all of the organs still in the body. And so you can see all of those physiologic connections. So the tool is Rokitansky, but you're taking all of the organs out on block, which is what we do in the hospital setting. At UCSF. At UCSF, yes. yes. So you essentially, in the Rokitansky method, you do the Y incision. You open up the chest and abdomen, uh, the thorax and abdomen, and then you will take off the rib cage anteriorly, and then you kind of disconnect the colon and bowel separately. So that's kind of gone-like. And then they'll kind of disconnect everything from the tongue through the sides of the neck, down through the outside of the lungs, behind the kidneys through the bottom of the male or female pelvic organs and through the bladder. So they'll kind of disconnect everything within your thorax and abdominal cavities. And then you can kind of take it out as one unit and have that on your, on a separate bench while somebody can then go back to the body and take out other things that you might need, like the spinal cord or the brain, often in forensic autopsies. Once you take off the chest cavity, you take out the heart and then you take out one lung and then the other lung and you kind of work your way through more individually yeah. until you get to, like I said, usually a neck block is taken out together. Um, people are trained in one system and they tend to like that system. For me, I personally really like kind of the Virkow slash gone method. There's different utilities to these different methods. I personally also think I like the Virkow method because for me, when I get the organ block out as one unit, it's harder for me to orient myself to the block. It's easier for me to see it and think of it in situ. Yeah. And be like, okay, well, this is here, and that's where the pancreas would lie. Not like, well, now it's upside down on my table, and everything is kind of flattened out because we don't have the chest wall and the abdominal wall holding everything together. Yeah. So it doesn't look right anymore, Hmm. you know? I can see that. There's a lot of benefits to doing a full autopsy. There's a lot of things that you can't, obviously, that you can't see... And you can't get with an external or tox only. Kind of moving into modern day. The rates of autopsies are decreasing. They're trying to find ways of doing things called minimally invasive autopsies as a way of trying to encourage the use of autopsy as a quality assurance tool. But one that might have more interest, I guess. Okay. Because... It's not an invasive procedure, so it, it's probably easier to get families to sign off on it. Also, you don't need to You don't think need about to keep the, the body. Yeah. You need to keep the... You can take the imaging, and then the body can go to the funeral home or the crematorium or whatever. Yeah. If you have the infrastructure, in a way, it's a little bit less resource-intensive. Um, yeah, so cheaper. Yeah. So they're looking at ways of doing autopsies using imaging only. Um, so I read through a couple studies where they were looking at postmortem MRI, uh, CT and CT angio, which is a type of CT, but they put this dye, uh, into a person's vessels and it kind of lights up the vessels and the organs so that you can see different kinds of pathologies better on imaging. And so these different studies have found that imaging is actually pretty good, um, in comparison to the standard autopsy, 
uh, in establishing the cause of death and uh, any other secondary diagnoses that might also be seen on autopsy. But there are certain types of conditions that are better seen on a conventional autopsy versus an image uh, imaging autopsy. And then the difference between CT only and CT angio is also somewhat significant. So a CT angio is better compared to just your standard CT. Sense. So this one study that I found found that if a condition such as something that involves air, so a pneumothorax, which is where you get air into your cavity surrounding your lung and it causes your lung to collapse, um, or an air embolus where air gets into your blood vessel. vessel. Um, Those things are easier to see on imaging versus conventional autopsy. Which makes sense. Yeah. The second we cut into something, the air... Yeah. (laughs) But all of these studies... The bottom line was basically that the best algorithm when using imaging to do autopsy is to do the imaging as a kind of triage mechanism and Mm -hmm. then to do the conventional autopsy and combine those findings into one death report. And like I said, with um, the forensic autopsies, often they do an x-ray first. Yeah. So they're already kind of incorporating that. And that's something like there was one autopsy um, that I did that I did that I helped with somebody had been shot and they needed to collect the bullets and you could see like if a bullet ends up in a body you can see an entrance wound but it's amazing the amount that a bullet will ricochet within a body and it's not a straight path like people understandably would think it is but it's can be kind of crazy so having that imaging and being like oh okay because this person had been shot in um the hip and it ended up you could see of course we only get the one dimension from top down so Mm -hmm. you know kind of in one axis where it is but you don't know what height it's in we knew it was kind of by the other hip and then ended up being deep to the hip bone but we didn't know that so we kind of went in anteriorly and had to remove the hip bone to get under it to find the bullet and we're digging around for a while and the cop was very happy when we held up the bullet triumphantly imaging in that case like if we just saw the one entry wound on the one hip that's a lot more area to cover yeah and it can take a very long time through those bones to know where it ends up yeah and the lodox is a it's just like a plain film plain Mm -hmm. x-ray so like the chest x-ray that you might get when you have a lung disease right uh and then some offices do have CT, CTs, which and I then, think they do have at SF now. They, they just, just got the CT angio, right? But they haven't started using it. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, because okay. one of the forensic pathologists there is very involved in a cardiovascular study, which has a lot of different branches. And I think as part of that study, they want to incorporate postmortem CT angio to see if that can how beneficial it yeah. can be and how how expensive it is, how well we can incorporate this. Yeah, so that's one of the downsides to using imaging in correlation with autopsy or in place of autopsy is that you still need trained professionals to read Mm -hmm. the imaging Um, and if you're using it as an adjunct to the autopsy then you need more professionals so you need like text to help run the imaging you need like a radiologist who's trained in reading it or a forensic pathologist who is also trained in reading post-mortem imaging because as a soon-to-be pathologist we know as much about imaging as the next person that comes out of medical school we look at our imaging of our patients especially with certain things like bone and soft tissue tumors but 
we're not professionals in it at all. We wouldn't be able to diagnose certain medical conditions from imaging and what does this density suggest or not. We, we're not trained in that. Right. So you now need not only a pathologist, but you need a radiologist for every autopsy. And Yeah. And I also found this study that was looking at imaging in um, fetuses. You talked earlier about how useful uh, autopsy can be as a tool in things like intrauterine fetal demise. And so they've looked at ultrasound of human fetuses as a tool, and they've found that that is also pretty good at determining, helping to determine cause of death. So one of the issues with ultrasound on adults is the field only goes so deep, but on fetuses, they're pretty small. So that small depth would actually tell you everything that you need to know. Imaging can be very beneficial and can hopefully work in adjunct and maybe someday replace some autopsies. There are some autopsies that still would need to happen. Things like a lot of the more quote unquote legal autopsies. So Mm -hmm. a murder. So, you know, like we're talking with bullets and trajectories and that kind of thing. You still need a physical autopsy for that. There's things that you still need tissue for. Yeah. You like a lot of neurological conditions. You need to take certain sections of brain in order to establish diagnoses. Like we can't do that on imaging. We can't do that on laboratory results. We need to see the physical brain. And there are... It's even gotten so far now that there was a paper published by the Joint European Society of Pediatric Radiology um, with guidelines for how to perform pediatric post-mortem CT imaging as a protocol oh, wow. for helping uh, to establish That's awesome. like injury patterns and cause of death. So The only other one I think we want to briefly touch on is um, FNA biopsy or fine needle aspiration biopsy. So these are biopsies that kind of combine some of the image guiding biopsy with some histologic diagnoses. So a fine needle aspiration is when you take a tiny needle, like smaller than the kind you use to draw blood, and you can pass it in and out of a mass or a lesion. And some of those cells will kind of get sucked up into the needle. And then we can take those cells and push them out either onto a slide or spin them down and get like kind of a block of cells. And we can look at those under the microscope. So rather than having to cut in and take out Um, let's say part of a breast, we can do a biopsy of that breast and look at those cells under a microscope with a small needle and not have to cut in if there is an issue along those lines or if there's just one thing you want to look at. Yeah. Uh, One of the papers I looked at that was comparing the MRI, the CT, and the CT angio. The CT angio, I think they also did biopsies of specific organs. And then if there was anything that they saw on imaging that they wanted to look at specifically, they would do additional biopsies of those. Mm, So in that way, their like diagnostic yield went up much higher. Um, It's like a directed autopsy. Yeah. It was directed autopsy. Then that's like a counter argument for you need a lot of resources. And kind of along the same veins as the, the FNA autopsy is something that's like pretty brand new in the field, molecular autopsy, Mm. um, where you take a sample and it's usually a a blood sample. So post-mortem blood, you can use that and you can compare it to a standard reference DNA, or you can compare it to familial DNA. Parental DNA is the most helpful, but in cases where it's like sudden death in the young, or mm. um, we were talking earlier about intrauterine fetal demise, you can compare the decedent's DNA to a reference genome or familial DNA and see if there are any variants in the DNA that could maybe have led to some sort of 
genetic or inherited disease that caused the death. Um, and that's also really good for families because it can kind of tell you if there's any risk in other family members. There have been stories where people who died of sudden cardiac death um, and they weren't diagnosed with anything, they find mutations in certain genes and then family members who are found to have those same genes can be put on a s- type of medication and then um, it decreases their risk for sudden death. So There's some amazing advancements that we currently have and now it's just a matter of prioritizing those new technologies and making sure that we don't spend too much money on some of this stuff so more people can get the resources that they need. Yeah, basically from all the research that I did, the ideal algorithm for a postmortem examination mm-hmm. would be to do a CT to kind of triage okay. a decedent, plus minus biopsies. I would say plus minus tox. Would tox go into that? Yeah, yet? tox goes into okay. that also. Okay. Yeah. So you would do some sort of imaging up front, CT or CT angio, plus minus a biopsy, and then traditional autopsy followed by molecular testing, if warranted. If warranted. So that's like the ideal algorithm. Yeah, because molecular is the most expensive, so it's kind of like if we don't find anything else, then this is kind of the... Right. Um, but getting to that point is going to be the most challenging mm-hmm. because, as you said, numbers for autopsy are decreasing because there's less interest... Partly and and some of the stuff we talked about in um, our last episode of like the coroner versus ME system, some of these counties that are very very resource deprived, right? Do they have the money to do this? Do they have a like? Do they have a CT angio? I'm sure that like we're, no. like we're getting one in San Francisco, right? So it's probably the only local county that has this, and it's not even up and running here yet. So are you going to send all of the bodies like if bodies in a state go through one central area? That might work, but if you need to do it in middle of nowhere, choose your favorite state, <laughs> maybe that's not as possible. Right. But it'll be interesting to yeah. see where the career goes when we're in it. I think we at least have a couple of years of good, like pure doing autopsies on everything, and then I think we're kind of in a good place to transition into this. Yeah. Um, that's true. Yeah. Um, so Hopefully you guys learned something on what the actual procedure is, why we do it. Hopefully you learned several things. Maybe one or two. Yeah. Possibly more than five. (laughs) We were talking for a while. We were talking for a while. But if you have any more questions on anything that we said, if any corrections, anything else that you want us to talk about in the future, you can email us at thedeadtelltales at gmail.com. Or you can send us a ping i don't know why that came into my mind send us a ping (laughs) through uh how do you ping is it pinging a thing ping i just pinging is what i think of when somebody sends you a text or like a message on any sort of social media platform (laughs) (laughs) like that's really antiquated (laughs) ping you can send us a ping on uh twitter at dead men do or insta at the dead tell tales and then we have a facebook page at dead men do tell podcast and yeah, thank you so much for for listening in today. And a special thanks to Lee Rosefear, who uh, had a bunch of free music that we have used for our intro. It's called Introducing the Pre-Roll, and you can find their music on SoundCloud. Um, so thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>